Kat. And I'm Kurt, and you're listening to Kat and Kurt's TV Review. Welcome to episode 108, Fear Makes People Do Stupid Things. This week we're discussing series 7, episode 12 of Doctor Who, Nightmare in Silver, and season 2, episode 2 of Angel, Are You Now or Have You Ever Been? As always, we suggest you watch the episodes before you listen to the podcast. Also, if you haven't done so already, you may want to listen to our first podcast to get an idea of our methodology. Okay, so we've got some uh, nightmare from Neil Gaiman going on Yeah, Um, Yeah, Neil Gaiman. I think I remember you saying that before we saw these episodes that you knew sort of of the doctor's wife but you didn't know that he had a second episode so. yeah i i didn't even know he had the second episode until you mentioned it and i had no idea what it was about yeah so yeah um, um so this is it this and as is of it. now it's his last episode although this is only this is not that long ago so you know hopefully we keep our fingers crossed for yeah. future episodes for yeah him. what 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 is this 2012 at this point? 13. 213, okay. Yeah. So it's a, just a, about exactly two years ago now. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, so, yeah, so I I hope and I think would be reasonably sure that he'll be back again at some point. Um, so I just had a couple quick notes um, about his involvement and then, you know, we can come back to him later if we feel like it's relevant, but... Um, if I can find my notes here. Um, okay, so Neil Gaiman. Uh, so one of the kind of briefings that, or I guess the main briefing that Moffat gave him this time around, um, rather than kind of doing what he did last time with the free reign of what do you want to write about, and he did, um, Moffat gave him an assignment this time, which was to make the Cybermen scary again. Because Moffat kind of felt like Cybermen aren't, often that scary (laughs) and maybe sometimes more so than others and maybe less so recently than they have been in the past like you know the Cybermen aren't the scariest of the new who monsters and then we've had them a lot so they become even less scary with the use and everything um so you can kind of see Moffat or sorry uh Gaiman playing around with how to do that um you know you can tell like the design is different. Like they've remodeled them and everything. And he talked um, in his, you know, interviews and commentaries about how this idea of upgrading technology and how, um, you know, he says like, my phone is always getting sleeker and faster. So why wouldn't the Cybermen, if they're upgrading, surely they would, that Mm -hmm. would be how they would upgrade is to get smaller and thinner and just more and more like, you know, right. speedy and everything. Yeah. Um, so you can kind of see how he's playing with those ideas. Um, sure. And we can talk about some of the other scariness that he brings into it. Um, but the other quote I wanted to share just because it made me smile was in an interview before it came out, so nobody knew what the episode was, he said, uh, it's about identity, it's about responsibility, and it's about porridge. And, you know. Yeah. When when you're listening and you like I remember hearing that and not knowing that Porridge was the name of a character. Right. You right, know, of it's course. kind of an intriguing little summary there. Um so, you know, just thought that kind of and maybe we can 
talk, you wanted to talk a bit about the tone. I feel like this episode is a lot of that. It's a mix of him trying to bring some scariness to the table, but also some of that whimsical Neil Gaiman right. humor of, you know, characters named Porridge and, you know, bumbling soldiers and all that. And the way that those two things sort of mix uh, yeah. is maybe his signature style. So Yeah. Um, well, no, I, I did want to talk about the tone. So maybe just, I mean, we can talk about the situation a bit of the the abandoned amusement park. Mm-hmm. Um, and like in that you get, you get almost this like tales from the crypt sort of feel, you know, um, because it is like this dead thing and, you know, people yeah. are sort of crawling around within it. Um, but like, you also have these moments of like, sort of like classic horror adapted to Dr. Who sci-fi, uh-huh. uh, language. So you have like the Cyberman head with the cyber mice sort of running over and through it and like out the eyes as you would get like worms crawling or bugs crawling right. out of like a skull or something like in, in one of the classic horror movies. Um, or you get like the hand that's like detached and sort of moving on its own accord. Like that would be like this haunted, you know, yeah. I, what, what was that one movie that was like, um, it was like really kitschy. Is it uh, Evil it was like Dead? Late nineties or something. I don't know. There's, I mean, it's been like, the redone hand and or whatever, yeah. but yeah. yeah, like, like one of those things of like, yeah, like it's been re- redone over and over. Well, and but, kind of, kind of um, the kitschy, you know, kind of the kitsch of like the Adams family with like, uh, oh, with yeah, thing, yeah, yeah. With thing yeah, and everything. Thing, yeah. Like, it's not, it's kind of grotesque, but it's a campy kind of horror rather than like, you know, yeah. like there is something kind of funny about this disembodied hand wandering around that just sort of reaches yeah. out and jumps on the, it gives you the jump, but it's also kind of funny at the same time. Yeah. But then also, I mean, it legitimately attacks the person too. You know yeah. what I mean? So like, yeah. or like, um, the Cyberman that like takes his head off and then like, right, you right. know, the, the soldier goes up to, you know, knock it out or whatever. And like, it comes up with this like headless, you know, Cyberman yeah. behind him kind of thing. So like, yeah, they are kitschy, but like also, t- I mean, it is scary because the Cybermen can do these sorts of things and mm-hmm. actually are killing people or at least debilitating, you know, uh, uh, upgrading them as they would say. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I think he, that kind of stuff does more to kind of show how the Cybermen can be threatening rather than just being like the kind of stomping around monster that doesn't do much. It just sort of overwhelms you with sheer numbers kind of thing. Like, whereas in here they're trickier, you know, and like, like they do all these clever little, you know, things to sort of, like you said, like make it look like they're, over here when they're really somewhere else or detaching their parts or, you know, the fact they absorb and upgrade constantly. Um, actually the one thing having just recently watched the game of Thrones episode, hard home, where they have that big battle with, uh, you know, spoiler alert, there's a big battle with the whites. Um, yeah. And then this kind of awesome and terrifying moment at the end where, you know, the, the king of the, you know, uh, White Walkers raises his hands and all of the dead are now right, part of the... They start raising so, up, yeah. so their army has grown tenfold because the slain... That reminded me of... We don't see them upgrading people 
as to that extent in this episode, but that's always been a part of the Cybermen mythology, but I feel like they make it more explicit in this episode, like Parge's line about it's hard to fight an enemy who can use you as spare parts. So basically right. your casualties become an advantage to them. Mm-hmm. So fighting is going to, so you, you lose no matter what you do, because even if you resist, they'll reabsorb all of your losses into their, you know, and you kind of see that with the way that they're constantly upgrading their technology to defeat whatever. Yeah. So I think he does a pretty good job of, coming up with ways to make them scarier than they've been. Um. Yeah. And, and I guess I, I mean, we kind of got away from talking about the tone and the amusement park to talking about the Cybermen, but they are kind of like intertwined here because like you start off with like these quote hollow shells of like the Cybermen that are like, you know, like, Ooh, how is he moving on his own when Mm -hmm. like there's nothing inside, you know, kind of stuff like the kitschy magic and stuff, but then like it really does move on its own and it's, yeah. you know, they're not hollow inside and that kind of, so like, or they're being remotely controlled or whatever it is. So there is, there is a link there, but, um, but you also do still get the, like you were saying, like the, the two tone of the humor in it too. So you get like, um, you know, real castle. Yes. But comical, but comical, <laughs> like, yeah. you yeah. know, like that kind of thing, like just thrown in there and they're very serious about it. Like, Yes, it's a real castle, and you know it's our best defensible position, but it's comical. Yeah, um, and yeah. I feel that's, like that's sort of that proviso of does it have a moat? Yes, but just so you know, it 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 might be a little comical, you know. Yeah, um, I, I, which I feel like they didn't actually capitalize quite as well as they could have on. It, it's really the not very funny of, at all. No, the the castle. It's just sort of a castle. You have to sort of believe that it is a comical castle, but that you don't it would actually, be if it were. Yeah. Yeah. Right. You don't actually ever see that in action. So, yeah. And I feel like, um, that would maybe be, I think the biggest fault with this episode is that, um, and I think maybe you can kind of tie directly back to the doctor's wife where again, Neil Gaiman being a novelist, not a, uh, a, a TV writer. Um, mm at least not as, you know, not primarily um, of having to kind of remind him of what's achievable on a production level. So things like in the doctor's wife, like he had that whole sequence of them exploring the interior of the TARDIS that had to be sort of scaled back. And even the fact that they pushed that episode back to season six to give him more money to do Mm. what he wanted to do, they would have had to cut it back even further if they did it in season five. I feel like in here, you can see they try to go out of their way to give him a big, like, you know, it's it's a pretty big episode. Like, there's a lot of characters, and the sets are big, and, like, there's the one, you know, shot of, like, the thousands of Cybermen and everything. Like, as episodes go, this is a pretty big one. But even so, you still get the sense of Neil Gaiman still doesn't know how to <laughs> scale an episode. Like, there's certain things that... Or maybe they just didn't do as well in achieving what he had in his imagination. So things like, um, like that of like really capitalizing on this idea of the silliness of the amusement park, you know, Mm -hmm. um, again, other than the one really nice shot of like the decayed and decrepit, like roller coasters and everything after that, it doesn't really feel, um, 
quite as lively as it sounded it it you know as it should in the dialogue and everything um and i also feel like this episode could kind of i always feel like it's there's a lot shoved in like if you were going to do a two-part episode in the season this maybe what should have been it um like it seems like it i i wonder how much was even excised from the script like you know it seems yeah. like he's trying to fit a lot in but I hate to complain about an overabundance of imagination. Yeah. So maybe that's not really a criticism, you know? Yeah. Um, I, it just feels like in... I didn't even mean that as, like, a major criticism per se. Like, I mean, I don't... It's upon reflection that you kind of notice, like, oh, yeah, they never yeah. actually did show the comicality of the castle. Yeah, and, like, in what way is it comical? Yeah, yeah but but, like, I didn't... It's not something I actively thought of, like, During while I was episode, watching right. the episode. So, yeah. I mean, maybe if I see it five more times, I might, you know, now that it sort of brought it to my own attention. But, um, I, yeah, I, I kind of see what you're saying. Like, he, he's maybe a little more idea-driven and isn't so, um, mm-hmm. you know, in his writing, he's not really as tied down to things like, can we actually film this, you Achieve know, this. or yeah. Yeah. use effects or whatever you know in the amount of time and and money that we have yeah um so i can see that that, on the other hand i mean it's not like this is the first thing of his that's been um you know put on screen so no no certainly not (laughs) by far um and there will be many more things so you know like it's enjoyable even even though there there may be some faults like that which again i would classify as relatively minor like i mean the it the the comicality of the castle i like that word comicality um <laughs> is is more humorous because they're you know talking about it in like the strategic yeah. you know meeting planning session that they're having um you know whatever so yeah well the line is fantastic you just there there is that moment in retrospect where you're like oh, i wish the castle lived up to how funny that line is because that mm. is such a that yeah there's something really that jumps out about that line i think but um but yeah i agree i mean it's a fairly minor it really is only in retrospect that you kind of you know even think about it um yeah yeah so yeah i mean like just to finish up with the tone and everything like um you know the fact that you have this amusement park setting and with the kids and then this kind of, you know, Webley as this like weird nomadic sort of, you know, illusionist figure and everything that kind of, again, balances some of the whimsy and with sure. you know, the scarier elements. So, sure. Um, so, yeah. So, talk, so I guess, um, just sort of still talking about kind of the situation, um, I wanted to also talk about the children. And so like you get, which, which I think the tone of it, like, you know, the amusement park, obviously they go to amusement park because this is, you know, Clara and the doctor and the two kids like going to an amusement park for a fun time. Like that's what you do with kids. You know, you take them to amusement parks and that kind of thing. So, um, the, uh, 
you know, but the other thing is, so like one, you get like the disappointment when they realize that it's decrepit and closed down mm. and, and, and you even get like the, oh, you know, this used to be the greatest thing in the world. Yeah. But kids don't, kids don't care about what things used to be. Like yeah. I can't ride the rides now. I can't, you know, do the fun stuff now. Like yeah. that's all they care about. But then you get even like, um, with Artie later and like, you know, being left alone and like him, you know, this, the scariness of that mm-hmm. aspect of it too. There's, um, uh, you know, and, and Angie wandering off and sort of causing heartaches for Clara, you know, and right, heart, right. uh, palpitations or whatever for her. Yeah. So, um, you know, I, I think, I think that all works well. And, and of course, I mean, we already sort of were hinted at, at the end of last episode, mm-hmm. um, that, you know, Artie and Angie had already kind of figured out at least somewhat of what was going on with Clara. So mm-hmm. we knew that they were going to be sort of brought in at some point or s- strongly suspected yeah. that they were going to be brought in at some point. So, yeah, this is you know, sort of the their, setup their is, blackmail trip is there. You know, take um, us on a take us on a trip or else we'll tell kind of thing. Um, but the other the other thing that I was just thinking of, too, is that like. You know, given given that we've seen Clara, a couple iterations of Clara as a caregiver or, mm-hmm. you know, something of some sort, even even I would say the original, you know, Oswin, mm-hmm. um, you know, as like junior entertainment, entertainment officer was yeah. like, you know, that was kind of like, it's not exactly caregiving in like the babysitting sense, but it's definitely, you know, taking care of the people who mm-hmm. are there and making sure that they're well taken care of and you know are not not, and not just like and, that they have enough yeah. food but yeah like that they're active and sort of um you know all that kind of stuff so it's you know definitely another aspect of of her character here to kind of see her in her element um you know taking them out on like a field trip right uh, yeah no uh, it's good to reemphasize that that's her relationship with caregiving in general but like kids in particular um that that sort of which also 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 makes you wonder about her attraction for the doctor (laughs) (laughs) well so um uh yeah so so yeah so i mean adding them into the mix and and i mean anytime we add more people into the sort of uh doctor companion uh relationship and kind of give additional dynamic there um because i feel like this is also like it's interesting because they're they're not really like this is like it's our babysitter's boyfriend you know what i mean like this isn't like he's the cool guy that we want to like hop into the tardis with and go on adventures i mean kind of because like they you know did figure out that there's time travel involved but Uh They're just kind of using it's like it's like they're okay with the babysitter's boyfriend because he has a cool car. Right. And, right. And, to take us and places. They, yeah. Yeah, they yeah. get to go out of the house, but they don't like they don't care about him per se. Like it's right, not right. anything that he is or does or whatever. And they even get like irritated when like he wants to stay and they're ready to go. And you know, of course that leads down a whole new path of trouble. Um Right. Uh, you know, whatever like that. But but I think the other thing is like, okay, so there's like this huge middle section of the story where they're kind of incapacitated as like, you know, pre uh, pre op Cybermen, 
right. uh, so to speak. And so... Right, like in sleeper mode or whatever. Yeah, so like, but then by the time you get to the end, I mean, you do see a little with Artie and like playing chess and stuff and mm -hmm. um, Angie sort of with her curiosity and stuff. But you do get a sense at the end, like you get Angie being the one to figure out that Porridge is the emperor. And, right. and like not even just figuring out, but like it's obvious because she's paying attention. And, and this is sort of the classic child adult thing, right? They're paying attention to things that adults are just running around crazy trying to solve problems kind of stuff and missing the obvious yeah. and Angie is there to see the obvious and is talking, you know, like has to relay to them what's going on. So you do, I mean, even though maybe they weren't willing participants and, and I mean, they were kind of okay as long as like they were going to an amusement park, but as soon as they found out that was done, they were just done with the place, but they do kind of get drawn in yeah. after that experience and all of that um yeah no they do kind of have like little uh roles as sort of proxies for maybe like the child audience watching like mm -hmm. like angie with her kind of noticing those little details and things um right you know and Artie, i like that meta moment where he sort of breaks the wall with breaks the fourth wall and kind of talks to the audience like his kind of it's almost like he suspects that someone might be watching and his he doesn't want to seem afraid. So his little, you know, if you're wondering, uh, yeah. I'm not really afraid. I just think I'll turn the, like, you know, which is a little bit of kind of cheeky break the fourth wall, talk to the audience. But also, like, we've all kind of been there where you've been by yourself in a scary situation. And maybe you do talk to yourself a little bit to kind of reassure yourself. Um but, like, I can also see, like, a kid at home kind of saying, like, Mom and Dad, I'm not scared. I just feel like we should have the lights on. You know, yeah. like, and, you know, just, I just want you to understand what's really going on here. But I'm going to go turn the lights on. Um, right. There's something uh, really true about the way that he does that. Um, yeah. Yeah, and the fact that they come back and they don't really clarify exactly what the relationship is. So at the end, it's still you know, by Clara's boyfriend, like, you know, that they don't, that's just kind of who he is. They don't really care to go any deeper into, like you said, like they're not that interested in the doctor himself. It's more about where they went and the, the TARDIS itself and getting to take a trip and everything. Yeah. Um, so yeah, no, I think there's some good, like, I don't think, uh, we we um need or could spend a giant amount of time on Angie and Artie. Like I feel like we don't get to know them that well, but just the fact that they their presence is important more than anything. Like the fact that there are kids along for this trip, mm -hmm. um, it's sort of the most important thing about them. Yeah, yeah. No, I I would agree. Like I mean, again, like for a large segment of the episode, they're incapacitated, really. So right. it's it's right. not even them it's you know yeah. cyber kids so right that's fine um same with like webley like he kind mm. of he's kind of the one who draws them in and kind of through the kids even draws them in but then like he's also incapacitated <laughs> for most of the episode yeah. so like i mean kind of a funny interesting character like not really sure why he's the only entertainer sort of still living there along with porridge, I guess. Right. Um, who turns out to be the emperor 
whatever such and such right um yeah he's sort of stuck there he reminds me of um like mr marvel or professor marvel or whatever in wizard of oz like this there's something yeah, about yeah, him yeah. that's like i don't know what you call that type of character but that kind of traveling showman illusionist with his little yeah yeah menagerie and his magic tricks and everything um yeah just kind of, like of fits a, with the like carnival atmosphere of it i um, guess reminds me of like the ideas too of like um i know you're reading patrick rothfuss yeah right now of like the tinkerers who kind right. of the roving yeah. tinkerers who um are yeah like they're kind of jacks of all trades like they have all these little things and they can kind of talk you into buying like yeah. whatever but they also have like these little like it's not like true magic but it's like magic tricks and you yeah. know skills that they can yeah you know kind of offer um and, and and yeah and it's like anything they can do to get you to pay them some amount like it doesn't even right. like so he's willing to I'll work for sandwich, half the sandwich yeah. like yeah you it's know he's better than no sandwich yeah um, not as good as two no. but um, um and i guess i might as well bring this up now too the 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 cyberman who plays chess um is mm. uh kind of inspired by um an automaton a real automaton called the turk um who yeah. you know was from the uh 1700s i think and was like exactly that like it was this turkish man who would play chess with you and there was like a chess master hiding in the base of the machine and so he would you know, you'd make your wager and he would go around to carnivals and beat everybody. So, um, kind yeah. of adapting that idea with the chess playing cyber. And I like that line about how he's only here to defeat you at chess. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, the, the mechanical Turk, uh, they call, yeah, him, they yeah. call him and, and he, uh, so it's, a, so there's a, um, actually Amazon has a service that they call the mechanical Turk uh that they use it's it's like it's like the same kind of thing where it's like you can split up i i heard this thing on npr about it um recently and where you can like give it like small little tasks or whatever but it actually parses it out to like all these people like so mm -hmm. like you have like people all over like the country or even the world like people in india or whatever like doing these like like it might take them like a minute you know long task and they'll get paid like you know 15 cents or something mm -hmm. like ridiculous and but then like you know you comes back and you have your data or whatever like that you need and like it's yeah it's these kind of like same idea of like you know there's sort of this mechanical interface but it's really people behind right doing it it's not actual like digital computation you know sort of happening yeah. um, behind the scenes so uh anyway um back to dr who the <laughs> the uh yeah, no, I mean, it's, and, and of course we've seen, um, the doctor playing chess before mm. and we see him obviously later in this episode as well. Um, like with, uh, like that chess death match that he has right. with this, Live the, the guy from the <laughs> silence. Yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah, like, you know, just just this idea that he is himself a grandmaster, but of course, you know, he's going to let the kid who's in, you know, his what fourth, fifth grade chess club, you yeah. know, right. uh, play 
Right, but 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 criticizing his moves the whole time. Well, yeah, yeah, of course, of course. Um, um, no, and I like the way that that the chess playing uh, Cyberman kind of foreshadows the the chess match for the universe between like the Doctor right. and Mister Clever. That it all comes down to, uh, you know, this life or death chess match. Yeah. <clears throat> Yeah, no, and I do want to get to talk to them, but I guess we'll, let's finish up with, like, the other... So, I mean, Webley, I don't know that there's much more to say about him, um, but we do meet Porridge through him, So, and yes. Porridge is, of course, a significant character. So, uh, Warwick Davis. Warwick Davis, yeah. Uh, great great to see him. Was not expecting to see him at all, yeah. so that, that was a nice little surprise. Uh, of course, so you've got, you know, Willow, you've got... Mm-hmm. Um, Wicket from Star Wars, from mm-hmm. the Return of the Jedi, which he's coming back. Is the, he for yeah, the the, the, for Ewo- the sequel? The Ewoks are coming back for the new ah. movies. So, oh, so the Ewoks are coming back. I don't know Wicket specifically, but okay. perhaps. Um, I don't. I don't know. I don't know the timing. Like if that works out, but I mean, other characters are back, so why not? Like he doesn't die in Return of the Jedi. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, whatever. Anyway, so um, yeah, I mean, obviously he's played a number of um, interesting roles and is a good actor. Yeah. And, and and I want to plug Time Bandits too, which is one of my favorites. So okay, I've never um, seen that actually. So go see that. Go see that right away. Um, I know every. I feel like every conversation with you, I have a new list of things <laughs> I new, have to see. A new movie you have to see. Well, <laughs> um, yeah. Um, the, uh, but yeah. So I mean, obviously, lot of lot of good stuff that he's been in. But um, and and he lives up to it here. Like this is a great great role for him. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I mean, I don't know that. I don't know when they expect people to figure out that he's the emperor. Uh-huh. Um, I think, I feel like I figured it out relatively quickly. Like it was, it was sort of in that first interaction of, um, I forget the lady captain's name. That's I a terrible way don't to refer it. to her. Just call her the captain. Uh, the captain's name. Um, I should have just said the captain. Uh, the, yeah, I forget her name, but the, um, sort of the interaction where she kind of looks at him and he's like, Oh, Clara's your commanding officer now, isn't she? Mm. Like I didn't guess that he was the emperor, but definitely that he held a high, like a higher rank than her, like that he was an authority over her and she was checking to, um, see what was going on there. Um, so I don't, and maybe that's where they intended you to find that out. So like, yeah, honestly, I don't. It's long enough ago that I don't remember when I, um, when I figured it out. Um, um, I feel like that's the one big hint, and then the other is the kind of um, talking to Clara about like the history of you know, uh, the cyber wars yeah. and his kind of, uh, what he kind of thinks of as a a selfish attitude towards what happened like yeah his his, his well, feelings I, about his own role and feeling sorry for himself rather I, than feeling sorry for the people that i'm glad you brought that up because I, yeah. I love that little exchange of he, yeah. he says to her he, he says i feel like a monster sometimes and clara says why and he says because instead of mourning a billion trillion dead people they're and they're talking about like 
this whole section of the sky that yeah. like no longer has any lights in it because yeah. it's he's imploded it all right. um, during this war with the cybermanians because instead of mourning a billion trillion dead people i just feel sorry for the poor blighter who had to press the button and blow it all up so yeah there is this there is this woe is me mm -hmm. if you know if you know that he's talking about himself you can yeah. pick up on it yeah and, and if there. you haven't yeah. if you haven't figured that out yet though it kind of it kind of makes it like i i like how it's totally a perspective thing because it does kind of make him feel like an em empathetic mm -hmm. individual there. But, but based on the tone and if, if you've already kind of picked up on that, there might be a weird relationship between him and the captain and, and, you know, yeah. that kind of thing. Like there's definitely this idea or actually I, I can't remember. Does that happen before the conversation with the captain? I don't remember now to be honest um, with you. I just, uh, I just that, remember that might... it, Maybe and, that's later. So maybe you're right that it's not until later with the captain exchange that you could start to put those pieces together. And so anyway, um, like yeah, like it would be, it would it it would be I would be hard definitely on its own. Like if you hadn't yeah regard like either if if the conversation with the captain happens after that or if it had already happened but you hadn't quite picked up on it at that point, it would be hard by this alone mm -hmm. to pick up on that. And I actually, I didn't pick up on this line until the second watch through. Mm -hmm. So that might be a perfect yeah. example of, <laughs> yeah. you know, how that's working. But, um, but I just, I, in that second watch through, I did love that line, just the way that he, he sort of says that. And, and um, one of our, one of our, so we always come up with like, a dozen or so potential titles for these mm -hmm. episodes. A lot of them we, we kind of reject out of hand, like as we're going through them, um, we might think they're good in the episode as we're watching it, but then we'll throw them away afterwards um, because they maybe don't apply to both or, or maybe weren't as applicable to the entire episode as we wanted to be. Yeah. But one, one of the other um, ones that we had come up with, with this uh, episode was potentially I'm so sorry I killed you, mm. which is um, actually something that's in the Angel episode, the, a line from the Angel episode. But I thought worked really well with this this particular conversation yeah. between um, Porridge and Clara here. So um, yeah, and I um, I mean that line's definitely one of my favorites too. When I wrote uh, when this came out, and I uh, sometimes more on time than others but i tried to do like <laughs> blog posts about them like yes. in, the, in the week or sometimes several weeks after they've come out um back when this came out uh that line that was the, I, I think i called my blog post for it the poor blighter who had to press the button because i think you have to be thinking about the doctor there too um oh you sure know, you know and and sure. we can come we can talk more about that later too but just that that parallel to me sort of jumped out and how yeah we do often think more about the poor blighter who had to press the button more so than the people who got imploded you know <laughs> like yeah. we spend and that, that's not to say that it's wrong to feel sympathy for porridge or for the doctor but but it's kind of a little bit of a wake-up call there to say yeah, it sucks for them, but, you know, a lot of people also died as a result. And it can be, 
a good reminder to think bigger than their angst, their sort of survival guilt, and look beyond that to this whole galaxy of people that's no longer there. And the consequence is not just for the one who pulls the trigger, but for the people who they're directly, you know, affecting. So not only does he kind of feel the guilt of what he's done, but he feels guilty for feeling sorry for himself. Mm. <laughs> so there's like all right. these layers of self-loathing on top of it. You know? Which which doesn't change the fact that he still feels sorry for himself. No. Like no. He, he feels sorry for himself he's and then feels guilty of, yeah. about feeling sorry He's perfectly for aware of his own um, selfishness, but that yeah. doesn't stop you from feeling selfishly sorry for yourself as well. Sure, so. sure. Um, yeah, no, and that's, and, and I mean, like, you can sort of rationalize that, too, to say, well, oh, you know, like, okay, it was, like, in a major, like, planet-wide explosion, like, probably most people didn't even feel it, like, you know, so they died instantaneously, they mm-hmm. certainly aren't aware of their deaths now, and, like, you know, like, you can kind of, like, almost back justify it but then when you start thinking about like a billion trillion now maybe that's just him being hyperbolic but we're Mm -hmm. also talking about numerous star systems yeah so that might not be hyperbolic you know what i mean like that could actually be you know that many people and and when you think about like it's it's one of those things where like when you start talking about like national debts of like you know Mm -hmm. however many trillions of dollars you don't act you don't actually have a concept of what that is. No, like what's like, really, what's the difference between 3 trillion and 10 yeah, trillion or something? Like, yeah. I mean, I get, I, you know, if I have a couple hundred bucks on me, I get like yeah. worried about getting mugged and keeping track of it all and not blowing it on, you yeah. know, whatever. But like when you start thinking in trillions of dollars, like you, you just, you like, there's, there's, actually no way that like you can really comprehend how much that actually is yeah and and which is why you get into things like theoretical economics and all this kind of stuff um but when you you know when you're talking about people and just like the staggering number of people who died in these things like yeah like like you almost have to come up with a rationalization Mm -hmm. in order to cope with it otherwise i don't i don't know else how you would you know too big yeah um so so yeah so that's i i really like that exchange i mean obviously not the implications of the exchange but i like the exchange itself as it happens um and and getting to know porridge and and interesting then so taking taking him and continuing like through his storyline of the um episode like he he has clearly taken a back seat. Mm. Uh, and it's interesting. So even like the exchange with between him and the captain and Clara, like, I don't get the sense that he knows that the captain knows <laughs> that he's mm. the emperor. Mm-hmm. And so like, like he's sort of like addressing it initially as like an offhand comment of, Oh, isn't she your right captain now? And, and int- but the interesting thing to me there isn't even just that he's like backing up Clara, but that as the emperor, he knows that the doctor is not who he says he is. He's not right. the proconsul or whatever. Right. He didn't send him here. Yeah. Yet. He he yeah. absolutely knows that the doctor isn't this person he claims to be, and yet 
he nonetheless takes a back seat and allows mm-hmm. the doctor and and not just the doctor but the doctor you know the person that the doctor puts in charge to yeah. to take so he kind of is I almost said absolving himself. It's not quite right. He's abstaining, I guess, would mm-hmm. be the word I'm looking for. Um, you know, abstaining responsibility for uh, uh, for the decisions to be made there. And, and kind of, yeah, taking a back seat and just waiting to see how things play out. Yeah. Um, well, and I feel like that goes along with this this uh decision of his to sort of be the emperor in disguise and to sort of dress as a, a you know as part of this traveling you know whatever sort of caravan they have and mm-hmm. and hide among the people you know and and sort of yeah like abstain from his he hasn't officially abstained but he's sort of gone in disguise and snuck out of the castle and now is sort of hiding among the plain folk, you know, as, as rulers do in stories on occasion. Right, in very, very years or whatever. Um, so I think that's kind of in keeping with, there's a kind of, and maybe that's part of his, um, guilt over the decisions he's had to do is there's a kind of wisdom there of, you know, there's the line at the end about, do you want to be the emperor? No. Well, that's the right answer. Um, But he knows that wanting to be the guy who makes these awful decisions is not, at least, even if he can still make the hard decisions, if he has to, he's Mm -hmm. wise enough to know that that's not, you shouldn't want to do that. And, you know, it's not good for you. And there are times where he has to go and, hide and pretend to be somebody else you know and and i think that makes sense then that there's people that come along like the doctor and clara that he seems to sort of trust implicitly that he would stay in the background and let them sort of be kind of wise enough to trust them to do the right thing and only step in if he feels he absolutely it's necessary um Like, there's, like, just a kind of restraint to the way that he goes about things, it seems. Um, Which seems probably very closely related to his, uh, you know, guilt over his decisions and everything. He's not in any rush to make those sorts of judgment calls again. Um, So, yeah. No, it's a good character. It's a good... I like Warwick Davis, and it it was a good part for him. Yeah, um, yeah and and a really well written and, and nuanced mm-hmm. character, uh, just in general. So, um, <laughs> so before we get into the Doctor, which and and Mister Clever, mm-hmm. um, just some final thoughts. I mean, we kind of already talked about some of the Cybermen, so I don't know that there's a lot of stuff. Um, I I do like the the sort of like like you were saying, like sort of the incremental upgrades. Like, yeah, you know iPods get smaller and sleeker right. and whatever every year, so yeah. why not the Cybermen? Why wouldn't the Cybermen, yeah. And it may, like, you know, the Doctor even calls it out, oh, you're not mini-mats anymore, you're mini-mice or whatever, mm-hmm. like, whatever they're called. Um, although they look more like I think, caterpillars. I think it's Cyber-mites, like, like oh, with a Oh, mite, T. M-I-T-E. Oh, okay, yeah. I thought he said mice. 
Okay. Hmm. Yeah, no, I think there's like the, the insect well, that, connection. That and... definitely makes more sense, yeah, because they do have more of that insect y yeah. sort of look. Um Yeah, but that's because we saw the the cyber and... mats before. So now these have just gotten even smaller and right. yeah. So the I mean the other the other interesting thing is that it's like they're like constantly upgrading now. There's almost this right, right. uh you know, um yeah, like like it's just they're constantly whatever they are there. So there's a couple moments too that where you get like these matrix almost style moves uh-huh. from the Cybermen. And so you get that same sense too of like when Neo like downloads his, you know, kung fu knowledge. Right, you know, I know kung and, fu now. Yeah, yeah, in in the uh you know, when he's in, in the real world or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um so yeah, like you I I like the concept, and for mm-hmm. the most part, I like how they did. I wasn't I wasn't too keen on like the super fast, mm-hmm. like speedy Cyberman thing, because only because it didn't hold through. Right. Like right. It, it's that thing of like, oh, wouldn't it be cool if like we had the Cyberman like zip through all the, you know, laser bullets? But then like. Why doesn't why he did, do that all the time? Why didn't they just keep doing yeah. that? Like, and all of the Cybermen could always keep doing right. that. Like, so either, like, it shouldn't, you should just not have any of them do it. Mm-hmm. Or, like, they're all doing it and they need to figure out a way to stop them right. from doing that. It it goes from, like, that to, back to this army of sort of inexorable marching, but they're right. still sort of slow march you right, know, Cybermen, right. you know, coming at them. So yeah, I, I, I wasn't entirely thrilled with that part of it. But again, yeah. like it's it's all it's more like just because of execution, not in concept. Mm-hmm. Like like I I I think you're right. Like it does make sense to have, you know, if they are sort of constantly upgrading, to have them be like each generation is gonna be a little sleeker, a little yeah. You know, newer, a little faster. But. And I like your point, too, about the the acceleration of the amount of upgrades, too. Mm. That, you know, so not just upgrading other people, like, in the sense of, like, you will be upgraded, but, like, they themselves are constantly yeah. absorbing new information and improving. Like, it's, like, that's totally the way technology has gone. Like, every time you reboot, you know, yeah. your phone or your computer now, you have new updates to to install, and... That yeah. things are getting, and yeah. and that is only it's exponential, you know, yeah. both the speed and the amount of them. Um, um, and and you get to you get that comment from uh, Webley as the Cyberman, you know, saying we upgraded ourselves, the next model will be undefeatable. And then the Doctor sort of retort, nothing's undefeatable, which is also true because it's like as much as you know technology is always updating, there's always new viruses and yeah. new ways to hack and whatever. Um, but I do like where I think where I was just sort of criticizing, you know, the way that they implemented that one particular like, you know, super fast mm-hmm. Cyberman or whatever. Like, I do think the the idea of, oh, we can now use any living creature. Mm-hmm. Uh, not we're not only limited to humans anymore is like kind of the perfect like. Yeah. Uh, extrapolation of that continuous upgrading of, you know. You know, again, it's, it you know, using the computer idea. It's like, oh, you know, we're 
we're constantly creating new drivers and new, you know, interfaces to you to use new sorts of, you know, 3D printers didn't exist, you know, whatever, 10 years or however yeah. many years ago. And now there are there. So it's like this whole new device that can do all these different things that didn't exist before. So, you know, that same kind of thing of like, okay, before maybe we were limited to human parts. Now we're not, you know, and, and, you know, we figured out how to use genetic sequence. So I, I like that. And I think if we want to get into talking about the doctor and Mr. Clever, like I think where, where, Gaiman really did pull off and we've already talked about how like I mean I think part of the making of the Cybermen scary is this idea that they can upgrade to overcome anything and they can do so quickly and like Mm -hmm. they're adaptable like it's not it's not necessarily just the 1950s robot that kind of moves around and you can stop it by you know putting molasses on the floor and it sticks you know kind of thing. I don't know if that ever actually happened, but you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah. like that's the sense that you kind of get before. So like, you know, he does step in, you know, to the moat and like get fried, but then like suddenly, Oh, upgrade. And <laughs> yeah. we figured out how to reroute our circuits somehow. Right. Right. Like, so it doesn't yeah, matter. It worked for all of two seconds. And right. Then, yeah. Um, now they're all new so, and improved. Um, so I think the scary. And, and the kind of networking of it too, that they're, right. that, more so than before you have the sense of this kind of hive mind of if one of them upgrades then they're all the whole system sort of goes with it so they're all connected to each other and mr clever can kind of pull in all of the cybermen to figure out his chest problem and all that kind of thing um so the 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 scary part so you know if we're really kind of digging in and extrapolating the scary part of all this like to me, that is the idea that yeah, like they can now use the doctor and like, like that they're like this is legitimately scary again. Of there is really no stopping them except like total annihilation and obliteration of right. like the entire planet, which is what right. they end which up is having much to what do. They do yeah, um, and what the and that's the only solution that has worked before. It's it's liter- it's the um, you know it's it's the Russian you know, defeating the Nazis by burning their own crops kind of thing. Like, yeah. but even like it's taking that to like an exponentially worse scale, you know, like yeah. it's not even just burning crops. It's like destroying the entire planet. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And um, I think you get that sense of the dire stakes, you know, of like, you know, if even one of them gets off, this is disaster for the galaxy. Right. And even like the doctor doesn't want them. He keeps emphasizing, don't blow up the planet, you know, while we're still on it. But they all acknowledge that once we're off, the planet has to be blown right. up. You know, this is clearly the only solution. Right. Um, and the fact that they keep repeating, don't blow up the planet, don't blow up the planet, you know. You know just, it's going to happen. Well, and it just... It, it makes it seem like I like Clara's response of like, is that likely like, <laughs> like apparently this is like, it, it just starts to feel more and more inevitable, you know, right. um, you right. know, the fact well, it's that, as inevitable as at the beginning when Webley's saying, Oh, these Cybermen are harmless. Like there yeah, are no, yeah. like they're dead. They're not whatever. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah you've just sort of sealed your, you know, there. that that can't be true. Yeah. Um, so, the doctor, like the last ten minutes we've got here, like the right. doctor and Mister Clever. Yes. Um, this That's is Smith's good, isn't he? <laughs> th- this is the. I mean, this is again where where 
the Cybermen become scary because it, if, you know, I mean, the, and not that it's like the only time where we've had like, oh, if, you know, the evil villain gets takes his, over the doctor, you know, takes yeah. over the doctor or whatever, like, or the TARDIS or whatever, like he can then control the entire universe. So, you know, you get this like, you know, same thing with like the Daleks and like their infinity bomb and, you know, sure. like, you know, different, different situations of whatever. But like, that's why it's scary. It's because like, you know, if, if the Cybermen can get control of the doctor and his knowledge and capabilities, then like, this is the ultimate upgrade. And it's hard to think of how they could then be defeatable. Like right. if, if the next model will be undefeatable, like, you kind of get the sense like this is what they were talking about. Yeah. They weren't talking about like just the next like bug upgrade. Like, you know, right. this is like, this isn't fixing, you know, the problems with electricity in the moat. This is legit next model, yeah. next generation cyber doctor rather than cyber man. Yeah. Um, cyber time Lord, I guess. Um, yeah. And you, f and I feel like that, you know, kind of works with, you know, the idea they they he they highlight the regenerations and sort of how you know so the doctor mm -hmm. in a way kind of like the cyberman upgrades himself you know but you know naturally biologically rather than sort of technologically but you do get this idea that if they had knowledge so not only access to the things that he knows and his tardis and time travel and just the the scope that that would give them, but this sort of biological aspect of the thing that they're doing sort of technically, you know, then they would be, it would give them an even smoother way to do that sort of naturally, you know, so you're kind of, rather than talking about upgrading, you would be talking about like a real kind of immortality for the Cybermen. Um, yeah. So, yeah, no, and I think, it is something that's repeated a lot of what if the doctor gets taken over, but that's because that is one of the scarier prospects, you know, because right. I mean, the doctor on his own as the goofy doctor is fairly threatening, but then, you know, you imagine some of the villains having complete control over him and his capabilities and right that he instantly becomes the biggest threat, you know, um, even more so than usual. Um, and I like Clara's line about, it's kind of a stinger, but it's funny, her line about uh, she won't give him the trigger be in case you're not you right now. And even if you are, just in case, because yeah. even in his normal state, she's not sure that he right. should have control of the, of the planet detonating bomb. So... Right. It's sort of even like, despite the fact that he's the one warning against it, it's right. still not entirely safe. Yeah. So, um, um, you know, just kind of reminding us that like the doctor at the best of times is a bit of, you know, a bit yeah. terrifying, a bit of a loose cannon, but taken over by you, the only thing preventing him from that is the fact that he's a good person. You know, he's not actually out there to kill people and, but and even that doesn't necessarily matter sometimes no um but taken over by true you know malevolence he would be basically unstoppable so um yeah. um the the 
I, I, I also love that conversation with Clara and the captain where, you know, she says, I trust the doctor. The cap says, you think he knows what he's doing? I'm not sure I'd go that far. <laughs> like, yeah. like it's this thing of like, I, yeah. I trust, it's more like I trust the doctor's intentions uh-huh. rather than maybe the results all the time. Or even, I mean, cause most of the time the results are pretty good, but there's still yeah. those times when they're not, you know, like, yeah. But yeah, like it's I do trust the doctor like that he's he's working to do the best that he can. But yeah, yeah. like there is that fear that maybe maybe just maybe he might push the button. So <laughs> Yeah. Best yeah. course of action is to not give him the button. Don't give him the button in the first um, place. Yeah, and that also kind of reminds me of it's a tweak on Gaiman's other line about Time Lord, it's just what they're called. It doesn't mean he's actually he actually knows what he's doing. Um, you right. know, that kind of he may seem like he has all the answers, but yeah. um, um, and of course, so in Time Lord uh, mythology, I suppose, I guess uh, we also get the 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 Time Lords invented chess. It's our game, right. so. I mean, the Time Lords have a lot of patents, apparently, because yeah, like, black holes. Yeah, know. just yeah. lots of different things um, that they've invented. Uh, so, of course, you know he's very good at it, and we already mentioned that we've seen him playing it before. Mm-hmm. Um, but like, of course, not, of course, Doctor Who is not the first one to like compare chess to like real world like strategic mm-hmm. maneuvers and that's of course what he does here to sort of end up defeating Mr. Clever. Yeah. Um but but you do get this sense of like it's not easy. <laughs> yeah. Um to do this. Like this is a legitimate struggle that the doctor has yeah. in defeating Mr. Clever. Um so apparently the doctor is able to sort of apportion his brain uh, somehow, <laughs> yeah. like, you know, his mind or mental capacity. And like, and again, like we've, I've even seen other, I'm trying to remember of like specific stories, but like where like, you know, you use magic or whatever to like mm-hmm. not let your enemy enter, mm-hmm. you know, your thoughts or that kind of thing, you know, yeah. close off a certain part of your brain or maybe even like with star Wars where like, yeah, you know, you use the force to like cloak your thoughts from yeah, and there's, people uh, who might be able to. That there's a bit of that in Harry Potter, you know. Harry, yeah, like, I think I think that might have been what I was thinking of was Harry Potter, but it's been a while since I, I read the book. Occlumency so. or whatever, of yeah. like, yeah, you can learn how to guard your mind against I, invasion, and that I, I think it's thing. also in like the Dresden Files. So, okay, you know, like like, I, and and so like, I mean, it's a fairly common concept anyway, mm-hmm. but like. But yeah, like that there's this idea of, you know, being able to sort of do battle of the wits where like you're able Mm -hmm. to like hide your actual moves and cloak them with like these sort of faux moves. And of course here the faux move is playing the actual game of chess Mm -hmm. um, and then sort of tricking him to say, you know, oh, I'm going to have, you know, mate in three or whatever. Right. uh, and, And forcing the Cybermen to use all of... So this is where the, you know, Wi-Fi upgrade capability also mm-hmm. becomes a liability because right, then right. you're, like, sapping, you know, processing power from them to do this, like, completely complex 
yeah. uh, you know, sort of calculations or whatever to try to figure out what the doctor's doing. And of course, what the doctor doing is rule number one, lying. Lying, right. Yeah. And I, I love that he cheats at the end. Um, oh, yeah. That, you know, yes, he's a good chess player, but really he could care less about winning the chess match. He really wants to just win. Um, you know, and it, Which that's is almost Mr. winning Clev. the chess match because the chess right. match was never the chess match. <laughs> exactly. And that's sort of, I think, Mr. Clever's tactical mistake is to believe that this was the chess match was about the chess match. And the doctor kind of says, like, well, you know, he'll all win, but then he'll break his promise and kill us all anyway. You know, it, it, it never was really about that in the first place. But, you know, the fact that the Cybermen become so focused on the chess game is what allows the Doctor. And I like well, that about the Doctor, that the Doctor's not a hero who plays by the rules. He's perfectly happy to, um, you know, in there's no kind of friendly, honorable competition here. Right. It's like, as soon as he sees his window, the rules go out and he will take his chance. But it's know? interesting that the Cybermen thinks... Think that, that he, he is. is, yeah, and yeah. and and so that's right. That's their downfall again. Is the yeah, like and and I don't. I mean, maybe he was like in the old days in like you know classic who, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you know maybe he did have this sort of like noble streak of you know oh we always yeah. play by the book and right. play fairly right. you know even with our enemies, but that's not the case now. If that right. ever was, if that so ever was yeah. You know, so there is this, and so it's that interesting thing of like, even that, even his enemies don't quite think quite rightly about the doctor. Mm. That like they they have their own mythology about him, and part of that mythology is that he's Fair. an honorable man, <laughs> yeah. and that and that. So like, yeah, like the focus is on like, oh, we know the Cybermen will cheat us if they lose. Like, it doesn't mm. matter if they win or lose; they're going to take what they want anyway. And you never question whether yeah. that's the case with the doctor. So when it happens, yeah. it, it is kind of a surprise um, yeah. in in the surprise versus, in the surprisingness way, right? Um, you know, obviously, like it it does become of a, a sort of moment where you you can say the doctor the doctor has fooled us all in a way. Mm-hmm. Like it, you know, it's we weren't. We weren't waiting. We were expecting him to win, right? The the actual chess game, and then for the Cybermen to you know do its sudden but inevitable betrayal, right? Um, right. Right. While, and then him, and then he would figure out some. And then to, right, he, yeah, yeah, it might just be simple force of will, or yeah, you know, who knows? Potentially, he would regenerate. He talks about how regenerating would, right? You know, solve the problem. I mean. I didn't honestly expect that because I think I know he doesn't hear, but yeah. like I do also know we're coming up on end of seasons and mm-hmm. like into specials and yeah. like time. And I, I'm not entirely sure I know exactly when the regeneration occurs. So mm-hmm. it's a remote possibility, yeah. but still a possibility, um, you know, but there's, oh, or there might be other ways that, you know, something could have happened. Like, I mean, I didn't expect him to slap the gold foil on his face and that right, seemed to right. work for a while. So, you know, there's, there's different opportunities there, and, but I don't think, certainly not the first time through. And I think it even still worked like it. And I think it's enough of a, like it, 
works well enough under scrutiny that it mm-hmm. that it does fit that C.S. Lewis definition of surprisingness because it it still has that like yeah you're not like we don't expect the doctor to do that either even though we know rule like right. still knowing rule number one we yeah. still get fooled by it yeah. you know you and still expect your hero to play fair by the yeah. rules of of honorable combat you yeah. know and respect his enemy even as yeah. he defeats him and everything and he, even yeah, because the number like, of times we've seen him break yeah. all those rules yeah. like, no doesn't... But be, i think it's because we like him yeah. you just yeah it catches you off guard um but you're right like that line about you know what'll happen if you win well he'll cheat us and kill us all anyway that's pretty much what the doctor does at the end you know it's yeah. that's a pretty good description of of you know, him cheating and, and killing cheating all the Cybermen. And taking care of the Cybermen. So, you know, again, they are Cybermen. They are out to kill and upgrade the universe. I'm not necessarily judging his decision, but <laughs> it is a... I like that. I do like the surprisingness of that twist. That yeah. it, in the end, the chess match, those last three moves aren't chess moves they don't really matter it just matters that he distracted long enough to you know take care of it yeah um but but at the same time i think you do get some of the more you know again the doctor often his it's his means that are suspect but often his motivation is the more heroic. Like, I like the fact that he is taking risky moves and sacrificing pieces to get the kids out, that that's sort of priority number one is mm-hmm. get the, you know, um, here, take the queen and and get the kids, and that's, okay, that's sorted, that's the first line of business, and then we can go on to the other things that, you know... It's not just about winning, but it's he has his kind of eye right. on what are my priorities. And and, and I like that because it plays right into the Cybermen, you know, Mr. Clever's and the Cybermen in general's belief of the Doctor as like the noble hero. Right. He's, he's not just sacrificing his pieces, like he's sacrificing himself because like if right. he loses the game, he's, you know, going to be taken over mm-hmm. by them. So it like... Like it's it's like that whole idea of you know you're you're a noble fool and yeah. you know all okay so fine you rescued the children now but as soon as I win I'm just gonna take them back again right and so it 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 does suck you into that idea um, more more so and and of course all along the doctor's planning to cheat <laughs> so right. so like it's. For him, yeah. it doesn't matter how many pieces of his get taken. Right. But you're right. Like, he's using them to get the children out of harm's way and then do what he needs to do mm-hmm. um, to take care of uh, the Cybermen. Um, so, one, the, okay, so last point here, of course. So, they, all right, so they all get beamed up to Porridge's ship. Or whatever the emperor guy's mm-hmm. name is. Um, yeah. The the planet blows up. We kind of, you know, the doctor and whatever they get in their thing, and Porridge and his crew are going on their way. And there's a little beacon at the end. 
mm-hmm. like flashing mm-hmm. uh is the implication there that there's a cyberman something piece of technology that gets oh you know i i don't know that never occurred to me so far that's not been called back but it could be in the future i don't know um it 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 sort of had a picking up the ring from the fire okay uh kind of tone to me but i mean you know okay Mm. maybe maybe not yeah i mean that has not yet been it, called it, back so it had maybe that, like, in the future yeah it had that almost joss whedon-y like uh-huh. final twist to like say things are not quite as all right as it may seem and, but and even if they don't ever specifically reference that again they yeah. that could still be in there like i could see gaiman or moffat throwing that in i mean just for if for no other reason of the idea that there's always more Cybermen out there. There's always sure. gonna be you know, and, and are they ever really there's so many of them and they're so pervasive that will right. they ever really be totally gone? Right. Um you know, whether or not we ever see these characters again, um, or this particular sure. situation, um, that could very well be the case. Yeah. Um um, I feel like too, like we actually didn't talk a ton about Clara. Yeah. Um, I don't. I don't know that there's much more to say. Like, I mean, we we do get her sort of confidence, and you know, obviously her dedication to finding and saving the children and yeah. all of that, which like we expect. I don't think that's any of that's out of character. That's not obviously, news, yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I think the biggest thing, which is maybe a little bit newer, is this. Uh, the chance for her putting her kind of in charge of the platoon and the way she kind of relishes that role, you know, and even the doctor Mm. says like when at the end she says, do you think I'm pretty? And he says, no, you're the things he says are you're too short and you're bossy. So her bossiness is part of, you know, that Mm. she's, you know, a good leader and enjoys being a leader that, you know, she kind of steps right up and is, you Mm. know, standing up to the military you know, commander and giving orders and seems to take to that fairly naturally. So maybe that's part of being a professional nanny, you know, is Mm. bossiness. It's, it's part of that, but, um, well, and, and certainly Angie seems to dislike, yeah. What she say something about like you ruining everything or yeah, something like, like she, you know. Yeah, which, she's always telling her what to do and yeah. Yeah, like you know, you don't know how much to take that as just like normal like teenager. Teenage, yeah. Or, you know, whatever. But on the other hand, like it does you know, if that's one of the traits the doctor doesn't like too, it's like, well now you have two people sort of not liking that trait. So Yeah. Who knows? Um I also want to mention about her too, just the quick tiny little line at the end about see you next Wednesday that I think this is kind of the first explicit reference to the fact that it seems like this is, she's not living in the TARDIS, but, and that this is a sort of weekly arrangement that they have. Like mm-hmm. we, we go out on Wednesdays, you know? So yeah, that idea of a sort of semi-regular right. companion and maybe this... he just skips forward to next Wednesday and picks her up or whatever, but well, well, but and you get for her, the, this is like a, a weekly sort of thing that she does. You get the sense from him, too, that, like, it's not a linear thing. Like, right. he he says, oh, it could be next Wednesday, it could Maybe. be last Wednesday. One of you the know, Wednesdays. Like, yeah. One of the Wednesdays. Like, yeah, that there's, uh, yeah, like, for, for him, he kind of skipped around. It's always a Wednesday. 
It's just not in the same order as the Wednesdays that she has, um, which is kind of a a funny thing. Um, But I also got the sense at the very end that he, at least this particular time, that he's going to be going off to do something else between Mm. now and the next time he sees her, whatever Mm. Wednesday it happens to be. Um, Maybe, maybe that was just me, but um, I don't remember. I I didn't have Mm -hmm. a specific thing that I wrote down that made me think that but anyway yeah yeah it could very well be um and I don't I don't know if we need to bring up the proposal (laughs) (laughs) this sounds like an actual marriage proposal I like that he starts again giving her just like with the chess giving her advice like what he would do in this situation yeah. Um, yeah. Um, the last thing I want to mention before we switch, because we're over time, is uh, I guess just like highlighting, uh, you know, this is a good episode for Matt Smith and kind of giving him, um, you know, a chance. It's fun to see him kind of flipping between, you know, the Doctor and Mr. Clever throughout, um, you know, like just sort of. Mm-hmm just with his own, not even cutting the camera, just sort of with his own physicality snapping from one to the other. Um, and I, and I think you sent me a text, um, noting the, uh, um, imitations of Eccleston and Tennant, you know, and how, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, their catchphrases come out for a minute. Um, so, you know, just worth, you know, I, I think it's, just a nice little showcase for some of Matt Smith's talents um, yeah. in this episode. He's oh yeah, good. his the 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 back and forth between him and the Cybermen. I mean, like, really good job of mm-hmm. sort of picking that out. But yeah, like the the little you know the Alamzi and Alamzi. the you know yeah um, and the fantastic. He says fantastic. Yeah, um, yeah. That's a little more subtle, but yeah, like I, I didn't pick up on that one the first time through. Yeah, but I picked up on the Alamzi, but yeah, it's just because it's a more obvious phrase but yeah 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 very, very good. so all right well next week is the season finale so Ew. we'll right. see where that goes um indeed we shall and yeah so on to angel and i think you had a couple production things before we get into yeah. the main discussion so this is um, another episode written by Tim Minear, which mm-hmm. is always always fun. I wanted to um, I wanted to bring that up one because like um, I wanted to point out uh, one thing that that has been sort of pointed out in that Tim Minear seems to like to write about Angel's history. Mm-hmm. So like the last episode we got. Um, or one of the previous episodes we got, I can't remember exactly the last one we got from him, is, um, you know, the one where we had Jeremy Renner as yeah. Penn. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and so you're getting this, like, yeah, you're looking into the history of Angel and yeah. sort of seeing um, seeing what happened with him. And this is another one. Of course, not as far back of a history. This is, you know, only to the 1950s. Um but it's definitely definitely something that Minear seems to be 
mm-hmm. to, seems to like to do more maybe than some of the other writers. Um, and also his, um, I think you've brought this up too, just this kind of goes along with that, but corollary to that would be the, his kind of use of like flashbacks and nonlinear, like, um, yeah. like we've talked about out of gas and firefly and how like, yes. you know, you have parallel, like in that episode, like two or three different storylines running along in different timelines, mm-hmm. you know, and independent of each other, but like in parallel to each other. So like, things are happening in each of them that reference things in the other. So like the more you go on, the more you, it's not just like a linear story with a flashback. It's like the flashback and the, and the real time are like different, but related stories that you're like getting, you know, important information in each as you go along. So it's like way more complicated than just doing like a regular flashback. Yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. That seems absolutely. like a thing that he is good at and um, and enjoys doing too. Yep. Um, so yeah, so definitely wanted to point point that out. Um, uh, so Tim Minear sort of talking about Angel's background here. He he says he wanted to, he he wanted to go back to a point where um, you know Angel was kind of. He says, you know, he's cynical, I don't get involved guy. And I thought it was a very interesting place to be. Um, although he does reach out to help someone in the episode, it doesn't take much to push him out of that light. So it's like, mm-hmm. this isn't like Angel with a purpose or even like Haunted Angel or, yeah. you know, like whatever. There's something that happens here. And so I wanted to sort of acknowledge this up front too because some people have pointed out that, oh, well, we've seen Angel before he met Buffy and he mm-hmm. was like in the street eating rats, mm-hmm. you know, kind of stuff. And so, um, when sort of faced with that, Tim Minear has said, uh, he goes, you know, so we've also seen way back to him when he first re- you know, received his soul back from the gypsies. And, you know, there's that conversation with Darla, um, where, uh, basically she like throws him out into the street um, yeah. and, and my near says, I don't believe he was thrown out of that room in Romania by Darla in 1898 and has been like on the street ever since. Um, so that, so that there's this, I mean, obviously he was sort of distraught then and whatever, but that like, mm-hmm. like, yeah, like again, he's sig- cynical. I don't get involved guy at this point. Like he's not, he's, I mean, maybe he's still broody and kind of sees the visions of his former, you know, victims or whatever, but he's not like, yeah, like there's something happened. And I think what, what we're seeing here is that like this, you know, he leaves a hotel and it's that which starts to begin haunting him into the descent that eventually leads him to the streets where he meets Whistler and, you know, gets introduced to Buffy. And so like, which is still, you're talking like a 40 some odd year progression, like to do that. So like, right there's plenty of time for that to happen. Right. You know so it's I mean? not, like, it's not necessarily straight from. Yeah. It's Darla not like he's been living like on destitution. This. Yeah. Yeah. It's more like, yeah, you imagine that for the longest time he's been living this sort of just cold detached 
existence. Yeah, like trying to ignore. Yeah. Like, I mean, there's the sudden shock of like feeling the pain of a soul or whatever you, you know, however you want to describe that. But like, yeah, like he's, the way he's learned to cope with that is sort of, like you said, detachment and Keep to himself and yeah. and inundation of you know just like yeah, yeah. whatever um, yeah and and I I think too that this is kind of this is an angel with a mission but I like the idea that um, this is angel with a potential mission and then it gets. Goes horribly wrong. Like, right. you see the first glimmers of what could be that later, you know, uh, kind of redemption quest that he's on. But it gets sort of nipped in the bud for a long time by what happens, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. No, and, I, and I'm glad you brought that up because I think, I mean, this is one of the other things that Tim Minear, I think, does really well with the interweaving of the storylines is, is you get all of these allusions to um, the 1950s era of McCarthyism mm-hmm. and sort of Red Scare, you know, and of course the title itself is a reference to like um, the, the, the so-called $64 question of are you now or have you ever been a member of the Communist Party? Mm-hmm. And and this, um, which, which, you know, okay, so they're also, you know, so they're also in this like, Hollywood hotel that later yeah. becomes decrepit, but at the time is like this hopping thing. And there's like this whole like famous like inquisition and like blacklisting of various yeah. Hollywood personalities yeah. and, and producers and whatever. And so like you get all of this, uh, you know, and, and, and then of course you get like the racial stuff, um, yeah. you know, with, with Judy, you know, quote passing, even though she doesn't look anything like she would be, african-american or anything and you get like the the family that's like wanting to stay at the hotel but the you know this is like sort of like after civil rights but like it hasn't been implemented really well yet so they're kind of like making excuses about like yeah they can't outright say you're not allowed to stay here but they're saying oh no the sign's wrong there's really no rooms kind of yeah it's sort of post-abolition pre-civil rights like we're still in that awkward phase of you know okay we don't have institutionalized slavery anymore but we don't exactly have equality anything like equality but it's but you know but it's like california so it's supposed like it's more liberal it's It's, not like jim crow south per se right right so they're like yeah. Maybe slightly yeah, so less rude about there. it. Yeah. 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 There's um, a, there's a hypocrisy of wanting yeah. to seem liberal and, right. and it really being, you know, um, yeah, biased underneath, um, whatever. Yeah. yeah. And I, I mean, also there's, um, a very brief moment of angels seeing the two, uh, men who are together too. So like that right, doesn't right, go right. that doesn't go anywhere in the story, but another kind of social justice issue, you know, that sort mm-hmm. of um, there's not that there's not still bias today, but certainly in that time, you know, right, would have been another right. kind of thing to be, uh, you know, prejudiced against. You know, it's sort of all the worst biases of the time period in this one hotel and everyone's fears and, um, yeah. And, and right. And the paranoias and the, and the things that people do to hide those things because of what they're afraid others will do. And, and I think, and of course, 
this sort of summation of all that is that then you get the finger pointing of, well, so-and-so is a whatever to draw attention away from your yeah. own socially unacceptable yeah. behavior or whatever you, yeah. you want to call that uh, or preferences or, you know, whatever, however you want to talk about that. So, and, and that's, that's the paranoia that builds on. I, and, you know, again, the McCarthyism is sort of the, the biggest blatant, mm-hmm. uh, you know, aspect of that in this episode or illusion in this episode, but you're right. Like there's all, you know, the, you know, between racism and, and homophobia and, mm-hmm. you know, um, just even like suspicion of the weird guy who kind of keeps to himself, right. you know, uh, in, in his room, you know, like that, that all of these things together are kind of, yeah, creating this hotbed of mm-hmm. potential. Um, well, and I think too, the fact that Angel ends up sort of the target of that and then, I think we can make a a connection there between um, what we've talked about recently in Angel with this idea of what what makes a demon and are demons inherently, Mm. you know, because they all um, assume and jump to the conclusion of, you know, I mean, and magically influenced, but they jump to the worst conclusion of he's a monster, string him up. You right. know, um, which I mean, he does have blood in his room. So he does, like, it's, yeah, and and it's not like a completely, you know, illegitimate. No, and thing we do, and we do consistently root for Buffy, who goes around killing vampires because they're vampires. You know, so, but I think we also, at the same time, have had cause to question, um, the wisdom of jumping to conclusions. I mean, last though, in the last episode. Angel killed the demon who was trying to protect the pregnant woman, you know, and immediately regretted that. So, yeah, like this idea of out of fear jumping to, you know, the disastrously wrong conclusion. Mm -hmm. Um, Yep. Yeah. Um, and I mean, I guess the last thing too with the with the McCarthyism and everything, like the, I like how with Angel it always comes back to Los Angeles and how like mm. so not only was McCarthyism like a thing in the fifties, but like like you said with the Hollywood blacklist and everything, it always is very specifically about L.A. and what right. you know the history of yeah. that well. city and everything and and the and the uh entertainment industry and everything yeah and and we'll talk about like the hyperion hotel and its guests and stuff but um mm-hmm. but yeah like you especially get that like with the um you know like the screenwriter and the actor and yeah. actress and you know like you know these these kind of stereotypical mm-hmm. like <laughs> i love how like the screenwriters like almost sort of woody allen-esque yeah, but like yeah. not quite enough to like really call him that but yeah like yeah. Um you know, kind of has these these uh sort of classic stereotypical mm-hmm. um you know characteristics. Yeah, kind of qualities, yeah. Yeah. Um oh one other thing I wanted to mention real quick before we kind of move out of production notes into that is uh actually David Boreanis has said this is one of his favorite episodes. Mm-hmm. Um and, and I, I really like it too. Like I, I think it it is an interesting take on 
how to look at Angel's character and the development of bringing him from like because we don't see much this might be really the first time we see any significant portion of his life between like you know 17th century right. and Buffy, Buffy right, right. <laughs> um so I I mean I I say that and I'm trying to think of another one and I'm, I'm not coming other than the brief snippets with Whistler, which are real brief. Yeah. Like I, I don't really think we see anything like this yeah. uh, before now. So I, I like the, I like stories that explore those sort of previously unexplored and, and untouched portions of people's lives because, you know, the fact is it is hundreds of years, lots of stuff happened and mm-hmm. could have happened. And, so finding finding those things is definitely pretty cool. Yeah. Um, the last thing, I guess, on connection with the Hollywood theme, too, is um, all the different allusions to, excuse me, um, movies mostly, although maybe other things. And I'm sure other movies that I don't know or haven't noticed or whatever. But um, there were some that jumped out to me, and then I was kind of, looking it up on, um, I don't know, Wikipedia or something. And they kind of confirmed that I'm not the only one that was thinking, yeah. you know, so like, uh, cause some things I was like, I don't know whether that's just me reading it in, but like, uh, definitely like the bandaged nose, you know, is Chinatown, you know, all over, um, mm. you know, the PI with his sort of, you know, big gauze on his face. Um, Psycho, you know, the, the, the woman who's stolen the money and gone to, you know, on the run to hide it, you know, and things don't really go very well for her. Um, uh, you know, The Shining, obviously. Well, just the fact of, like, a haunted hotel, you always have to be thinking sure. The Shining, but Room 217 being significant and everything. Um, and then the other one, which I actually did think of, too, which it looks like somebody thought of in addition to me, so I don't think I'm crazy, is the yellow wallpaper. Because um, mm-hmm. the line about maybe the, the wallpaper drove him crazy. Um, which, if anybody hasn't read that, go read that. That is maybe yeah. the scariest thing I've ever read. So, <laughs> uh, that. Yeah, yeah. I, I remember reading that in uh, <laughs> high school. Yeah. And it was not fun. Charlotte Perkins Gilman. Um, yeah. The, so, I, sorry, did you mention Psycho? I did mention Psycho with the okay. yeah. her having stolen the money from her employers and being on the run. That's the premise of Psycho. You know, yeah, that's yeah, why yeah. she's um, left and is staying at the base the, hotel. The uh, the line sixty eight rooms, sixty eight vacancies is also a reference to um, Norman Bates saying twelve rooms, twelve vacancies. Okay. Like there, there's a, I mean, obviously a larger number there, but but sure. it's. Yeah, like in addition to sort of the plot of yeah. of the thing, it's 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 that kind of um There's a reason this there. place is empty, but you know. Um, yeah, there there's a couple others, but I mean you hit like probably all the big ones. So, some of the others are like a little a little perhaps a little more um uh, nebulous um, mm-hmm. the, like the phrase are you now or have you ever been is also in THX 1138 which is George Lucas's pre Star Wars uh, 
uh, science fiction film with mm-hmm. uh, Robert Duvall, which is actually pretty good. Um, but I've never seen that. Um, yeah, I mean that like I, I other than that line, which which like has its own. Um, like that line is is from a different thing, so it's not like right. THX eleven thirty eight like brought up that line, and like it's used in the it's used in the context of like these police robots interrogating Robert Duvall, so it's not even like that far of a mm-hmm. far away from like the original use of the line or anything. Mm-hmm. So I don't know that there's any yeah, it's kind of an connection in- there interrogation um, tool to as part of the witch hunt, right? Like that seems to be yeah. Um, and the then, like other other references to like similar, but not not quite as similar as like the psycho situation, but like similar situations with Judy, you know, sort of running away or like passing for white and mm-hmm. that kind of thing. So um, again, like I, I think you hit all the major ones, but yeah, it's there's definitely a lot of pretty clearly intentional allusions um, here. So cool, yeah. Um, and so in this, in the story of, um, Angel here though, so we have this Hyperion hotel, um, in the, in the mythology of Angel, it was built in the 1920s. Um, they say it's in the old heart of Hollywood. So it's kind of, I guess in this more rundown area at this point, and certainly the hotel itself is no longer. Yeah. Uh, available but um we were kind of talking before we started about how it kind of has a personality of itself and some of that is like imbued because of like the demon that's there Mm -hmm. but but like all of these all of these other things sort of bring in these other ideas from from these other movies and stuff so it does sort of kind of in a way act as a character in itself um and one of the things I wanted to definitely mention before we get into like the story is that I think that that that's confirmed or at least sort of reiterated at the end when you get Angel talking about, um, you know, wanting to to move operations to the Hyperion Hotel mm-hmm. and and you get I, I forget I didn't write down the exact words he says, but basically you have like the complaints of the others that, mm-hmm. you know, oh, this is a haunted place and it's, you know, cursed and it's whatever. And and his point is that no, we've we've killed the demon. It's not. It's actually kind of the perfect place. And that you get this sense of in addition to sort of Angel's mission to redeem himself and and I mean we've talked even about like Cording and Wesley, how they kind of are also in the redemption business too. Like they have their own sort of things that yeah. they're they're kind of overcoming as well. Um and like, you know, helping people out in that way that like now the hotel is part of that, too, because like yeah. it's been redeemed. So like the horrors that have gone on there, which is I mean, obviously, the I, I the hotel isn't a character. It's an inanimate object. It doesn't yes. have a spirit, but it was inhabited by this demon. And so you do get the sense of like. I hate to say this because it has particular connotations with vampires but almost Mm -hmm. like re-consecrated ground you know like Mm -hmm. like that it's been that it was evil but now the evil has been chased away and it's like you know 
it's good again and can like help you know fight in this yeah. fight that they're that they're actively pursuing and i i want to talk i want to talk a little bit about it too just because um in case you don't get the sense this it will be you know where we see angel and team coming together this is the new library so to speak the new yeah you know angel investigation offices and and for the next several seasons this is where their base of operations will be yeah um you know for better or worse so it it is sort of worth like kind of looking at it right from the beginning yeah um and and it's not like this like we actually saw it in the previous episode i don't know if you remember um it's where it's where it's where they run to and angel kind of looks around and is like oh you know we're in this hotel place Gosh, I didn't even notice that. I would have to go yeah. back and and um, see that again. Um, so, so remember when he and the pregnant woman are on the run, oh, and they yeah. run okay. into like this. Uh-huh. It, I don't know that it it's necessarily something that you would pick up. Like right. it's it is very quick and whatever. But this is that's like this is intentional. It's not just like oh, you know, they created this space and then they were later like hmm actually that was a pretty good space let's move them there like this right. was like the move like after the angel offices are blown up it's not like they're refurbishing that building and gonna right. go back there it's like they were working out of Cordy's apartment they realize we can't be working out of Cordy's apartment anymore so yeah. let's you know yeah go do something else and and so this was the move that they were going to um, yeah, no, and I like the way that that their their space mirrors the characters that, like Angel, this is a thing that was evil but not anymore. You know that it it the their location is being like you said redeemed, just like they are, and a thing which used to be, you know, something that would prey on people is now going to be put towards the use of helping people and, you know, mm. saving lives. So that seems appropriate um, for the show and for Angel's business and everything. Um, yeah. And, and you're right that I don't think it's more clearly... I, there's To bring it back to The Shining for a second... In The Shining, there's sort of three different things going on, and you can never quite tell which is true at any point. You know, are the characters going just crazy, um, which is one layer. The other layer is there are ghosts, you know, who are active. And then the third layer is that the hotel is legitimately evil. <laughs> like, right. Where, and it, there's no redeeming this hotel. You know, it is just a matter of survive if you can and get out of here. And in some ways this hotel is sort of parallel because the way that they talk about, like when Cordy or Wesley, Cordy and Wesley are doing their research and they say like, you know, there was this string of murders, like especially the one about like it, it closed because the concierge like killed all the residents with a shotgun. So like not only yeah. was there like a string of like, suicides or the occasional disappearance or people you know turning on each other but like at one point you know the concierge just snapped and killed everybody and that was sort of the end of 
people living in this place. Um, with The Shining, it's something similar. It's like, you know, the the hotel caretaker who was there over the winter with his family killed his entire family. And so, you know, right. it's a similar sort of like massacre situation. But I agree that this seems to make it more clearly that it is the presence of this one particular demon. And it's sure it's sort of tainted the hotel and done a lot of damage, but it's not an irredeemable space, you know, that with the removal of this demon, it can be put to a good purpose again. I think maybe sort of the same way that like angel wasn't originally pure evil he was a person like anybody else and he had this other thing inside him which caused him to do you know terrible things but you know when you give him his soul back he can be sort of redeemed again so um that makes sense so yeah and i definitely had the sense at the end of if not for the rest of the show at least it seemed clear to me that we're going to be in this place for a while. So it does seem significant to look at what the hotel sort of symbolizes, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. So to talk about, I guess let's start and spend most of our, whatever remaining time we have here um, on like the, the past flashback. Um, Cause I think that's probably the more important and a little bit meatier section. But um, I mean, we talked a bit about angel kind of what it gives you is this glimpse of what he was doing in between this time. And the fact that he is um, this loner and totally cut off and um, you know, and, and there's the little, you know, even a even in a hotel filled with weird loners where everyone is paranoid you still get the sense that angel is particularly freaky you know that the bellhop mm-hmm. says like have you ever looked into his eyes there's nothing there um so right. even though this is angel with a soul there's still something soulless about him that he's living this sort of empty <laughs> life you know sure um but uh You know, and he's pretty cold, you know, with Judy at the start. You know, it's not really until far in, you know, he does, yes, he does sort of help hide her momentarily from uh, the detective, but begrudgingly and not very gently, and he immediately, like, kicks her out afterwards. So this is an angel who helps the helpless. This is, you know... Angel, who's sort of wanting to just have as little to do with anybody else as possible. Um, But I like that we do start to get the teeniest little hints of him being interested in somebody else and feeling some connection and sympathy for somebody else. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, that he does start to think of how to help her and go out of his way to help her um so hmm. i'm trying to think of where to go next well yeah i mean there's so 
I mean, if we're talking about Angel, we we need to talk about the end. Though, okay, because, so so we just talk finish. Yeah, with that? okay, like, that was the decision. Like, I mean, I, I feel was like let's let's just talk about his character the whole way through because okay. he does try to help her, sort of. Yeah. Um. And she turns on him. Yeah. Like, and and she comes to him for help. Like, yes. she's clearly trying to figure out what to do, and and I think. So right, for it's her, not like it's not like he. It's not what we had last episode where this there's this pregnant woman who he wants to help, and she's saying, "Leave me alone, leave me alone. I don't need your help." This is someone right. who's clearly feels like she has a connection with him, who's coming to him to tell him her story, asking for his help. Like, you know. Anyway, I feel like that's important. Like she, she's reaching out to him. Um, so if we're talking about redemption, so there's this thing of, okay, she stole all this money. Mm-hmm. Um, she had her reasons. I mean, it's not like, like she was treated unfairly. Yeah. And you could, you could actually even forgive her for doing that because of the way that she was treated by her employers yeah. and whatever. So like that, that's not even really the question, but you know, Depending on your moral stance, like Mm -hmm. there is an argument to say that what she did was wrong, regardless of how she might have been treated. And so. And and even if like she seems to feel that way, like she seems to feel like it was wrong and wants to give it back and doesn't quite know how and like says like even like I didn't spend any of it, you know, like. So there's there are all these sort of things, reasons for her to sort of want to give it back and do the right thing and redeem herself, which of course never happens. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, there's, it, there's like that, like there's a reason why from a, from a philosophical and like a theoretical, you know, law perspective, there's a reason why statutes of limitations exist. It's because mm-hmm. like after a certain amount of time, the crime, like the punishment Outweighs, wouldn't make yeah. sense. Yeah. Like, you know, it's almost like, I mean, to, to be a little crass about it, it's like almost like punishing like a two year old or a dog. Like, yeah, if you don't do it immediately, it, there's no point in doing it because they're not, they're not associating yeah. the thing they did wrong with the punishment. Um, right. And I mean, I certainly think that adults can do that regardless of the span of time that goes on. But there is, there is that idea of like, after a certain amount of time, it like, it just doesn't make sense to make that punishment. Um, Now for certain crimes, of course, like murder, that there is no statute of limitations, at least for most cases. So like, obviously that's a spectrum. Like there's, there's not, um, you know, whatever. So I guess kind of the point that I'm getting to is like, yeah, she stole some money, but at some point, like, like that, that tapers off. So what point is that? Well, she certainly is punished, you know, for, you know, 40 odd years or 50 years or whatever it is, because we're talking, you know, pretty much 2000 at this point, you know, so if if we're picking 1950s, 40 some years, that she's been punished for for this thing obviously you know again it's from this 
sort of soulless demon. So mm-hmm. it's, this isn't like legal punishment. Right. Uh, this is uh, psychic and, you know, uh, uh, well, hellish and, punishment. Um, and I feel like that's an important distinction because I feel like not that there's no moral uh, line crossing with her theft, but like you said, there's a sympathy to it in that she's been badly mistreated. She's afraid she's angry and it's an impulsive decision that she immediately regrets and wishes she could uh change and her pickle is how do i how do i fix this without digging the hole deeper for myself you know because right. she probably has a sense and i think we would agree that like probably she doesn't deserve like jail for what she's done that like was it wrong? Yes, but she's not really, it's not like she's a, a a thief or had, you know, malicious, you know, she wasn't trying to hurt anyone. It was like a moment, you know, if we're talking about degrees of rule breaking, this was sort of an impulsive, rashful decision. It wasn't, you know, a calculated, premeditated sort of thing. Right. Um, so, you know, how to go about getting herself out of this without turning herself in basically um so but you feel like the thing she's being on a more moral level so that's like technical legal rule breaking but like her her sin i guess on the moral level and again not totally without reason it's not that there's no understandable you know motive behind it but her bigger sort of moral sin is that scapegoating of Angel, mm. you know, is that's the thing which kind of seals her fate in to be stuck in the hotel, you know, that, yeah. um, you know, and there's the lines about she can't because, she Because can't, she's afraid of being found out right. and, as, and is on well on the way to being found out. Right. And, and so she wants to shift that, punishment on and blame and whatever onto angel onto somebody else um and and the irony of her fear of being arrested and saying it would be like worse than death and to be trapped somewhere it would be like buried alive and all those things and then of course what happens she ends up stuck in that hotel she doesn't leave the hotel it seems to me you know for 50 years Mm -hmm. um that's the implication. That's the implication. Is that like she's, not even she doesn't leave the hotel, but doesn't leave her room. Right, right. That you know, and like that kind of ironic, you know, avoid try, almost a Macbethian thing of ensuring the very thing that you're afraid of by you know, like because of your fear of something, you cause it to happen. Sort of, mm-hmm. you know, um, and. Mm-hmm. You know, and again, like, she's nuanced. Yeah, she kind of does a awful thing. Um, but also, I think the script does a good enough job of building up the hysteria that you can sympathize and even feel like, I can't promise that I wouldn't do the same if I were her, you know? I hope I wouldn't, but right. if... In that situation with the paranoia and the 
blame rising higher and higher. And as the story goes on, people get more and more, you know, uh, paranoid of each other. You know, like, what starts as the guy's suicide turns into, let's hide the body so that they don't shut us down. And then it becomes, well, it was, he was in an unnatural position, so it must have been murder. And then, well, you must have done it. You suddenly, like, we've gone from a suicide to they're accusing each other. And, you know, right. so the tension's just getting more and more. So by the time that the police are arresting Judy, everyone's, like, crowding around, like, this lynch mob, ready. And with the racial overtones, you know, I think the right. lynch mob is particularly scary. Um, yeah. Which is what they end up doing to Angel. Um, right. Right, you know, and presumably would have would done have to her. Done. Yeah. Um, yeah. So. Right, and talk about like again. This isn't. We're not talking justice here. We're talking, you know, fear mob retribution. Yeah. 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 This is the mob mentality, and um, yeah, and like Angel says, like fear makes people do stupid things. Not just her fear, but the fear of the mob, the fear of the other. You know, whether mm -hmm. it's a communist mm -hmm. or you know um a vampire or you know whatever or so, yeah, some of a different race anybody or, yeah. anybody who is seen as this sort of uh invasive sleeper cell you know in your community or whatever um so yeah i mean i think i they do they do a good job of not uh not making her too black or white of, pardon the pun, not too black or white of character, like, not all, uh, you, you can totally understand why she does what she does, but clearly what she does is still wrong. Um, right. and, but she pays dearly for it, you know, and, and you are kind of left with that sense at the end of, is even what she did worth, you know, the punishment that she got for it? And she, you know, and that's kind of a gut-wrencher at the end of the fact that just as she's about to go outside and it's over now, she dies. She passes away, yeah. yeah. Which you almost kind of feel like it's the release of that that causes right. her to die. In a, like, right. it was probably, that's probably what was keeping her alive in the first place, so... Yeah, like maybe the demon was keeping her artificially right. Uh, right. alive to feed on her more, you right. know, on her fears or whatever. Yeah. Um, yeah. But to bring it back to Angel, I guess I want to finish talking about, because that's kind of, to uh, go back to morally ambiguous heroes, that's kind of a, in a similar way to the Doctor, it's it's not a shock, but it is a shock. It's like, on the one hand, we know that Angel can be ruthless, and so it shouldn't be a shock that he does what he does. On the other hand, we like him and he's our hero, so we expect him to be noble in the face of hatred, you know, and to be the self-sacrificial one. But, mm. you know, you can kind of... I I like the way that this justifies him continuing to be the loner that he is for so long that the one time he does try to have a connection and reach out sure. and help somebody she turns on him and you know 
basically gets him killed. I mean, it's only because he's a vampire that he's not killed right. because of this. Um, right. And so the fact that it's it's his doing that all of these people have, you know, came to all of these basically violent, you know, ends. Um, yikes. Yeah. Yep. Um, yeah, I, I agree with all of that. <laughs> uh, the, so, so yeah, so I mean, this is, I, I mean, this whole kind of the frame of the modern day, and I know we'll talk a little bit about that, although we're mm-hmm. quickly running out of time. Yeah. Sort of the frame of the modern day is that this is our second chance at redemption. Mm-hmm. But but the main, you know, story told through the flashbacks are, you know, this is many opportunities for redemption that mm-hmm. that were passed over. And the result of that is what? Basically, yeah, suicide and murder and depression and yeah. and um, you know, terrible things that happen. Um and yeah, like I, I kinda I I find it interesting that like I mean obviously we only get it in small snippets is but like the only things that Cordy and Wesley do the entire episode is look through newspaper clippings and kind yeah. of give like like with the details you're not getting through flashback everything they talk about is still you know about the 1950s yeah it's it's but, exposition yeah but what I really love about it is that everything they do is pointless yeah because angel comes in and says he knows it all. never mind i know i know everything that's going on and oh by the way i already know what the demon is and i know how to kill it yeah so which is i I, which is kind of funny just from a from like the two of their perspectives because they're they're fun. They're fun together. Like I like their chemistry together when they're mm-hmm. both like trying to show the other one up. Yeah. Um, but also like the fact that they do both kind of have their pointless side. I mean, they're not pointless because like obviously they do help Angel and whatever. But like there are times where they're both just like they're the sidekicks. You know, they're yeah. they're you know whatever. Um, so why but, why does Angel have them do that research if it's not necessary? Well, he 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 does he does say that he thought that like that it had left or like that he thought he wasn't sure like basically if it was still there or not. Okay. Um so like he's So kind he's of, having them confirm what he sort of suspects that it's still there right. and yeah. Right. Or or yeah, like I mean again, it has been 50 years. So like he's he's sort of revisiting these things and you get the sense that like the flashbacks are him remembering stuff as he's sort of wandering through the building. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, I don't, I don't think he knows up front that it's pointless. Mm -hmm. I think, I just find it funny that ultimately the things, the research they do is pointless because he already knows it all. It just takes him, you know, prompting, you know, and going through and, you know, like finding the case of money and, yeah. You know, sort of reliving the experiences to realize uh, what's going on. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I just find that funny because that's Cordy and Wesley. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I also think that from a, I, I do think that it's interesting that Angel has known all these years mm-hmm. about this stuff. And, and I don't think like vampire memories are like, say the doctor's memory where he has sort of perfect recall mm. in any situation that he wants to, unless maybe he doesn't quite want to, um, yeah. you know, but like selective recall, yeah. but like, I mean, I think, you know, we should expect it to work fairly similarly to human memory where it is possible because it was so long ago. He, he legitimately didn't really, um, remember it actually. So I just, I was listening to, um, you know, our friend Corey Olson's, uh, latest, not the latest. I'm like a class behind on the, the Princess Bride series. Yeah. And he made a comment at the beginning of um, the class. I think it's class three uh, where he, he talks about like, you know, there are a lot of books now where it's been so long since he's read them that going back to read them is like a whole new experience. And right. And I forget exactly, you know, something like when you when you can measure like the length of time between readings in like decades, it becomes like a whole new world, you know, that's opening up to you. And so like, but I I think that's true. Like, I mean, I think we, you know, we have to remember this is like almost half a century that that he's not been here. So I think it's it's legitimate to say like he did have to wander through that and that you know, those memories did come back and that yeah. like things were kind of slow to do so. But also there is a sense of like, wait a minute, you knew this was going on for 50 years and didn't, haven't done anything about it, even after yeah. becoming Mr. You know, uh, redemption crusader. So yeah, like, like I think, I think there's both like understanding of why maybe he didn't remember it, but at the same time, a little bit of of uh, chagrin and disappointment mm-hmm. and and you know like anger maybe at him for not yeah. doing what he should have done to take care of this thing sooner and that maybe had he at any point in that fifty years mm-hmm. like even a year before when he first moved back to L.A. like maybe maybe he should have gone there and freed judy but he didn't right you know and so again like you can chalk that up to like he just he legit legitimately didn't remember or maybe he did remember and for some reason there were there was something preventing him from yeah you know from going there so i you know again i don't know i don't know that it like i think that's a question we're prompted to sort of think about. I don't right. know that there's an answer to it. Um, but I do find that interesting that, I mean, that he did presumably can have this knowledge all along and whether, whether yeah. he just never accessed it or was incapable of accessing it for some reason, he didn't use it. And so yeah, there, there is a, a culpability I think on that, mm-hmm. you know, on his part too, for not doing yeah. something sooner. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I think it's kind of to this idea of forgiveness that Judy brings up a couple times that, you know, she hopes that the law will forgive her for her theft. And then um, and then at the end asks for Angel's forgiveness for what she did, and he gives it to her. But it seems like 
consciously or subconsciously, he didn't forgive her all that time. And maybe that's, mm. again, intentionally or not, it's like he had to actually forgive her and let go of what happened before he could, like, go back in there. And and maybe that was an active decision, and maybe there was, like, some repression going on there. But, like, right. he he said take them you know and then put that hotel out of his thoughts you know for the next 50 years and you know and that's not to say like you know forgiveness isn't easy but also it's that doesn't mean that it's good to not forgive people like we can certainly i think i think i think we're like you said we're, I think we're open to both empathize with Angel and also wish that he had been more forgiving, you know? Because, mm. um, like Judy said, like, is her fate, you know, she ends up with the fate worse than death, you know? Um, yeah. And for someone who's been sort of persecuted in their life to do again just like with the stealing of the money even her turning on angel is something that's done out of fear um you know and that is different than something which is pre-calculated and done with intentional malice and it's wrong but like you said, the punishment doesn't quite fit the crime, really. And right. Angel sort of leaves her to rot. So, um, yeah, kind of a complicated uh, sort of side to what he's done there, I think. Um, but, hey, I mean, better late than never, right? Maybe I mean too late for Judy, but at least yeah. the hotel is at least the hotel is cleared now, and he right. can try to put it to some positive use in the future. Um, yeah, that's true. We can, even if we can, even if all the people are dead now, <laughs> we can yeah right. At least there's no future problems going to crop up. Yeah. Um, the one other thing I want to touch on with Wesley, um, is, well, two things with Wesley. One being the little interaction between him and Gunn, you know, and I feel like Mm. that, that's interesting. Like, I kind of hope that continues, like the little playful rivalry that they have of, of Gunn, knowing that Wesley is kind of a stick in the mud and kind of, you know, giving him a hard time, like, throwing the orb, you know, because he knows it'll annoy him. And then Wesley, his kind of angel, like, his little appeal to dad to, like, you know, tell him to stop, you know, annoying me, you know, like, these kind of uh, kid brothers is sort of how they, and how Cordy says, like, that's not the paranoia, that's just them. (laughs) Like, they were... Right, like, like they were this way on the car. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so... It's nice to see, rather than have Gunn just sort of be there as the fourth person, like, a hint of, like, developing a relationship with some of the other characters and stuff. Right. Um, or, 
an interaction at least. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, or a potential relationship. Um, right. And then the other thing is Wesley's getting called out as the most paranoid, you know. So, and I sure. that's great with you know. It's a chicken or the egg of is he really the most paranoid or is it just because the paranoia demon said you know especially right. you that then he goes well what does that mean and then for the rest of the episode all he can talk about is how he can't believe anyone would call him paranoid and why would they say that and maybe they're saying it behind my back and you know <laughs> right. um you know and when Angel says he's not especially paranoid, he goes, oh, okay, good. I was worried, you know, but it's good to know that he's not especially paranoid. So, um, again, hard to know whether that's innate to Wesley or whether that's just the demon messing with him again, you know, but right. in any case, it would be Wesley who gets singled out for that kind of thing. So, sure. Cool. Um, I yeah. Think I don't know that. Kind of. Yeah. I, I'm. Well, we're kind of out of time. Do we have any other uh, major no, points I, that we missed? I think. I think we're good. Just. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think. So yeah. So again, I mean. I mean, you pointed out that, like, Gunn is back, you know, sort of with the team, and, like, that they're yeah. developing kind of a rapport of some type. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, no surprise, like, that they're there. So we've got, like, you know, a new team member. We've got a new place, um, you know, where they're going to be. So this is – we're kind of, you know, setting up um, not just the second season, but sort of – the rest of the series in a way. So yeah, definitely a good couple of episodes to start the season. But um, I think you'll see as we move in, you know, we'll start getting into maybe some more of the arky type yeah. stuff. Um, uh, but yeah, I mean, I really, and and it's interesting too, because that's actually another thing going back to just sort of Tim Minear being the one to write this. Like he, he, does tend to focus on some of the arc stuff, but this is a very much a standalone episode. Yeah. Um, not that it's, it's bad in any way. It certainly is not bad, but um, just that it's, it's sort of interesting in that way that it does call out, um, mm -hmm. you know, sort of angels history and stuff, but I think does some good setup for, you know, stuff that, that will come later. So. Yeah. Cool. All right. All right. Well, we'll be back next week talking about uh, actually a pretty fun episode of Buffy. So oh, cool. we'll, uh, we'll, we'll be back. Yeah. All right. See you then. I'm Kurt, and you're listening to Cat and Kurt's TV Review.